Good morning. We have a lot to do today, a lot to cover. Good morning. Would you please make sure your cell phone is in the off position? And um, I don't know if you do this or not, or if you even recognize it, but when you exit here today, there the people who are back there on the table, are we working? We're not working. Or one of them is not working. The monitors are not working. They're doing what they can make them work. Okay, they'll work. Say uh, an appreciation of the people who work that table back there and make things uh, work for us. I don't know where to begin. Um, well, let's do this. Let's begin like we always do in uh, silence and just do what you need to do to be in this room. Just take a deep breath <clears throat> and bring who you are into the space. Our goal is just to be present and to be open and to be here. I think a great way for um, making something happen in your Daily spiritual practice is to focus on gratitude, just being here, grateful to be here and for all that had to happen for us to be here. And our goal in this time is to honor the values of love and truth and freedom with the belief that what we do here benefits all people everywhere. So, uh, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Um, I, I want to, um, I, I can hardly contain myself to tell you this. Um, earlier this year, um, Michael Morewood and his wife came and spent a couple of days with us. And he said on, uh, that he didn't want to do any teaching, didn't want to let anybody know that he was here. He just wanted to hang out. And they made this great driving tour of the United States. <clears throat> and at one of the meals we shared, he said, uh, by the way, do you know Jan Phillips? And I said, no. He said, you should. So I bought Jan's book, which is called Still on Fire. You can get that book, order that book, and read that book. Uh, Jan Phillips is going to be with us in January, and it, I'm telling you, I've not been as, I've not felt the connection with anybody uh, for a long time, or as energized. Uh, she is a ball of fire, and so um, I really want, would like, you'll hear more publicity um, going forward. We just didn't have time to get it. Uh, all done, but we do have a date. It's the first Saturday, January the 6th, as it stands right now. She'll be here to do uh, two presentations on a Saturday. We'll have a meal. There'll be no charge, and then she'll be here on that Sunday morning. Read her book before she comes. It is an astounding story, and you will be encouraged and, and um, hopeful because of it, okay? I'm really excited about it. I'm just I think it's going to be a wonderful thing. We look for somebody who could come that we could, uh, that wouldn't be somebody everybody else has had, big name people, but I think you will really, really like her. And she's got a website. You can just go janphillips.whatever it is and check her out and, and see. This is really good. <clears throat> so I want to begin today by asking, by a show of hands, Okay, how many of you hate being asked to hold your hand up in a gathering like this? <laughs> no, seriously, I want you to have a physical experience of what this class is about today. So would you take your finger, if you're right-handed, your dominant hand, and point it up to the ceiling where you can see it, and then don't do this too big or you'll knock the person sitting next to you off your chair. But would you just draw a circle, a small circle, counter uh, clockwise? So you're going from 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 
back around clockwise and keep that clockwise finger going, okay? And just slowly bring your arm down like this. You can look at it and look at me too. Until now you're looking down on your finger. And which way is it turning now? Counterclockwise. Gonna do it again? Now don't keep doing that all during class. You can do it when you go home. Our culture has trained us to think that our finger has suddenly started going in the opposite direction. When in fact it's our perspective of the finger that has changed. Mature spirituality, which if we've been talking about all the time in ordinary life, but more specifically in the past few weeks, is about being open to a view of the world that is outside of the one that is designed by our assumptions. Because what was assumed to be true yesterday is not necessarily what is seen to be true today. And of course, what we hold to be true today may not be true tomorrow. Things are not always as they seem, and our assumptions frequently are way off base. An elderly pastor was searching in his closet one Sunday for a clerical collar. Uh, he had misplaced the one he usually wore, and so he was looking frantically, kind of being late to church, and on a shelf in the back of the closet, he found a, a box. And um, in that box, there was, it was like a shoe box, there were three eggs and over $100 in $1 bills. And he was really puzzled by this. And so he took the box to his wife and said, do you know anything about this? And she was embarrassed and she admitted that she had hidden that box there for the entirety of their 38 years of marriage. And the pastor was a combination of puzzled and hurt and disappointed, and he said, why? What's this about? How could this box have possibly, possibly hurt my feelings? And she said, well, every time during our marriage that you preached a bad sermon, <laughs> I put an egg in that box. And the pastor thought about that for a few minutes, and, and then he concluded, you know, three bad sermons in 38 years is not bad. And then he said, well, what about the $100? And she said, well, every time I got a dozen eggs, I sold them to the neighbor for a dollar a dozen. <laughs> Things are not always as they seem, and sometimes our assumptions are way off base. All of you are familiar with the shock that was sent through the world in which and to which Copernicus and Galileo made their conclusions known that the earth was the center of the known universe. Now we know that intellectually like this. We know that intellectually. But emotionally, we still experience that the earth is the center of things. We experience that the sun rises and we experience that the sun sets. Although we know this is not actually the case, our emotionality is not up to date with our knowledge. Our sense of the planet on which we live got another jolt when we got the first pictures back from a manned space flight and saw what Carl Sagan referred to as our blue marble of a planet. And then again in May of 1990, when the first pictures from the Hubble telescope were released, really made uh, popular somewhere around 1995, I think. That was a game changer. And just this week, images from the James Webb telescope that are so many thousands of light years away from where we are right now staggers the mind. This is an image of the Carina Nebula, which is roughly 7 
1,600 light years away from Earth. This next image is the image of Stephen's Quintet, which is 40 million light years away from where we are. And here is what is on NASA's website about this image. Quote, NASA's James Webb Space Telescope has produced <clears throat> pardon me, the deepest and sharpest infrared image of the distant universe to date. Known as Webb's first deep field, this image of galaxy cluster SMACS 0723 is overflowing with detail. Thousands of galaxies, including the faintest objects ever observed in the infrared, have appeared in Webb's view for the first time. Now listen to this. This slice of the vast universe covers a patch of sky approximately the size of a grain of sand held at arm's length by someone on the ground. You cannot get your mind around this kind of information. This kind of information ought to get us into the task of rethinking everything. I've got a buddy in California who is sending me constantly um, <clears throat> wonderful cartoons and jokes and things like that. And after the James Webb images became available, he sent me this. <laughs> you gotta wonder. And then there was this cartoon in um, The New Yorker recently, and, and it says, um, the Webb's telescope first images allows us to see some extremely distant and frankly, better galaxies <laughs> than ours. So a shift happens. A shift in perspective and position can be forced upon us. You go to your doctor and you're informed that the results are some condition that medical science has no treatment for. Or someone who is as close to you as possible suddenly dies and is in your life no more. Or worse, they betray you in some unforgivable manner. Sometimes the shift comes because we undertake some study like this or open ourselves to some experience and we learn something, we see something, that you can't, once you see it, unlearn. You can't unexperience it. I had an experience like this in an art museum in Arles, France. Arles, France. In uh, 2006, Sherry and I set out to have a driving experience in Europe. We were going to fly to Lisbon, Portugal, which we did, and end up in Nice, France, which we did. We were going to drive from Lisbon to Nice, and we had no plans of where to stay in between. We had desires, we had hopes, but we just were going to do it. So um, we wanted to go to Salamanca in Spain, but we tried and tried and tried to get a room and finally found out that they were having some huge convention in Salamanca, and so we couldn't get a room. And uh, I phoned a dear friend of mine. Some of you remember Dr. Joseph Rochelle, who's spoken here before. We're going to work out a time for him to come back and do that again. Anyway, I called Joseph and said, we don't know what to do. Where should we go? And he suggested that we go to Arles. And I'm glad he did because it's a wonderful city uh, built on Roman ruins. There is still a Colosseum there that they use for um, artistic performances, dramas and plays and that sort of thing. Nearby is one of the world's oldest aqueducts. And just by coincidence, after I had uh, written uh, today's uh, talk, I found out from a news magazine that uh, get updates on great photography that happens during the week. At this aqueduct, there was a guy who was a tightrope walker who walked across it. You, can you see him? Over the top. That is a definition of insanity. 
You know, Arles is the city that was home to Van Gogh. And uh, this is where he did his painting, although there are a lot of references to Van Gogh in the city, there is no actual painting of him, um, by him, anywhere in the city. A lot of people are not aware that really Van Gogh wanted to be a musician, but he didn't have the ear for it. what you pay for. You know, <laughs> so we found out that there was this quaint museum in the city that was having an art exhibition. Um, they, they, we wanted to go because they had some um, Giacometti sculptures that we wanted to see. And uh, they were having this art exhibition called Light, which we knew nothing about when we went to the exhibit. But they, they had these sculptures that were placed around the museum. And this one is in kind of an alcove between two of the galleries in the museum. And uh, when I went into the alcove, I could see that somebody had pasted or glued metallicized uh, bean pods. And you can see them on the wall, the floor, the arches, and so forth. And then the statues in the alcove. And I asked the security guard if I could take a photograph of the sculpture. And yes, it was OK. And then after I'd taken it, he motioned me over and he said, look, go over there and stand and look at the bean pods. And when I did, this is what I saw. So the artist had arranged them in such a way that when you got in that perspective, in that position, it looked like the bean pods were a floating globe on the wall. Now, if I were a real magician, I would wish to create this kind of experience for you when it comes to the values of peace, love, joy, patience, and humility so that you could leave here saying, wow, I've never seen it that way before. So in an effort to pave the way for us to understand better the last few chapters in the Gospel of John, I've been talking about gaining a new perspective, a new position by and from which to view resurrection and what resurrection meant in the developing Christian tradition and what it might mean for us now. Now, so far, in quick review, I've said we suffer from a mythological crisis in our culture. I've also said that mature spirituality looks very different from the so-called Christian fundamentalism that seems to have taken over our political world. And last week, I said that in ancient Judaism, there was no belief in an afterlife. You lived, you died. That was the end of it. And such a belief system was not to induce despair, but rather it was meant to lead to lives of wisdom, or what the Buddhists would call skillful means. And then something happened. A new truth began to emerge, and that new truth that became a necessity in Jewish theology was because of a shift that had occurred. Shift happens. So a crisis occurred among the Jewish people that produced a shift in their belief about life after death. They had lived inside a mythic understanding of life and death up until the time this event occurred that I'm going to describe today. Then this crisis occurred that caused them to live out of a different story, to create a different story. Now, the reason the Jews rejected any notion of life after death was because they wanted to differentiate themselves from all the religions around them. All the religions around them believed in life after death and had various gods and this and that and so forth. And the Jews said, no, we have one God, one living God, very important, who lived in the realm above the earth, in the sky or heaven. They were the same. And, and um, they didn't have the James Webb telescope. 
know what was really up there. So no other gods were in the sky or heaven except the God of Israel. And um, even the spirits of those who died didn't go. They stayed. So the crisis that fell upon the Jews not only caused them to rethink their theology. Get it? They rethought their theology. It's an okay thing to do, to rethink your theology. But the, this, the rethinking of the theology was also going to affect the Jews who came after them who became followers of Jesus. It's critically important. So at the time of this crisis, Israel was not an independent country. Uh, Israel, Israel was kind of in a nation-state status between what we would now call Syria, um, the realm of Alexander the Great, and then the emerging Roman Empire, and Israel was kind of in the middle of these two things. And the, and the culture was becoming more and more secular. It was less religious. The religious leaders of Judaism didn't like this. They still wanted the Jewish people to be separate, to be have a separate identity. Now, I want to stop right here and say that um, it's important to remember that history is always written from the side of the winner. All right? The people who are the winners get to tell the story about what happened. We watched a documentary the other night about the state of Arizona, particularly about the three major Indian tribes that inherited, that inhabited the area we call Arizona before the white man took over. And this Native American woman was telling about her experience of going to public school in Arizona where the history of her people were told in two paragraphs. So the Native Americans inhabited this the territory for decades and decades and decades and the white man for this long, but the white man gets to tell the story, so it's a different story. Just keep that in mind, because I'm going to tell you a story about what we think happened. But it's told from the point of the view of those in power. So what we know about this crisis among the Jewish people is from the Jewish point of view. And where we know it from is from two books that are not in the Bible that most of us are familiar with in what's called the Catholic Bible. But we do have a parable of this crisis in the collection of Hebrew scriptures called the book of Daniel. And that's where we get our information about the story. So here's the outline of what we know, what we know really. In about the year 175 BC, a guy, this guy, um, Antiochus Epiphanes, you're familiar with the word epiphany. We have epiphany every January the 6th in our liturgical calendar. It's when the story of Jesus is made manifest to the world or showing forth to the world. So Antiochus Epiphanes actually meant God manifest. So he's God on the planet, among those people, among the Syrian or the, the empire at that time. And he wanted, because Rome was getting powerful, he wanted to exert his power. And he was wanting to expand his kingdom, and he was partially successful. But after a while, he was stopped by the, the Romans, and the Israelites began increasingly to fill the squeeze. Now, there were two brothers in the Alexander the Great Empire who wanted to really come out on top of things. So they bribed Antiochus to allow them to inhabit and take over Israel. One of the brothers won out. Money talked in that time, and these two brothers got in a big fight. And um, when I say they had this sibling rivalry thing, what I mean by a great fight is that according to the data, in a span of 72 hours, 80,000 people were killed. And the Jewish temple was desecrated, 
Antiochus tried to suppress the Jewish religion, well, the Jews revolted. And, and a Jewish zealot by the name of Judas Maccabee waged a guerrilla war against the Syrians. And though he was able to take the Jerusalem and the temple, he was eventually defeated. And at this point, the Romans intervened. As I said, what really happened is kind of lost to us, but the story about what happened is not lost to us. And that story, which is enshrined in a myth or a parable in the book of Daniel, um, is important because it is what led Israel to revise its view about life after death. It's a myth. And um, all good myths are designed to give us meaning, hope, identity, and direction. And the Jewish people were without that after this insurrection. So in, in this time, many Jewish people were put to death. This being put to death would later be called martyrdom. Important. Then later, this martyrdom in Judaism would be called Holocaust. That's the first time we have this in history. But it reoccurs in the, in the Jewish-German thing. So the word uh, martyr means witness, and in the second century it became a technical term applied to those who were being put to death because of being Jesus' followers. So <clears throat> the notion of resurrection from the dead comes from this period of Judaism. And I hope I can explain this in a way that makes sense. So in an effort to protect what little territory they had, a lot of Jews were killed. Their deaths put a, a, a real stress on the Jewish belief system. Nothing like this had ever happened to them in this, modern, quote, modern time. And remember, it was very important that they had this belief in a living God. And that was central to their theology. And they began to think, well, if this God is true, living, life-giving, how could faithful people be murdered without some justice being done? The Jews and God had a bargain. It was called the covenant. And they began to wonder, can God keep his part of the bargain? May oh God. Now, in the past, it had been the other way around. God was always, through his, God's prophets, chiding the Israel people for not being able to keep their part of the bargain. But they didn't care about that. They wanted to know, can God keep God's part of the bargain now that we've got our backs against the wall? So um, they looked at the deaths of all these Jewish people that had occurred in this short period of time, and they said, how can this be? This, they, this is not right. Surely there must be some way out of this problem. And that way out of the problem is found in the book of Daniel, where God is going to raise up these people who had been martyred and vindicate them. Now, in Daniel, God sees, the writer of Daniel sees this as happening either right now or sometime next week. And as with all predictions of the world, into the world, that was wrong. But the vision, the story that came out of Daniel was very powerful. And it created this new myth for the Jewish people. Now, though all these other religions around them had views about life after death, this was the first time that this had worked its way into the theology of Judaism. Now, I want to be clear about a couple things about this resurrection. This new theology about the dead waking up into life was not about individuals waking up. It was not about their souls. It was about a community of people. That's very important. This is about a people. And resurrection, remember from the last week, simply meant standing back up into life. Not going up into heaven, but 
standing back up into the life that they had been robbed of. This is a national, communal identity. And further, it wasn't their death that demanded a resurrection. It was how they had died that required justice. Two important things. Now, if your view of resurrection comes from a 14th century painting, you're going to miss the truth of this. If your understanding of resurrection comes from songs, sweet gospel songs about the sweet by and by, you're going to miss what the Jewish genius created about this understanding of resurrection. Now, the first Jesus follower to talk about resurrection was Paul. And this is where Paul got his idea of resurrection from this Jewish story that I've just related to you. For Paul, Jesus was part of the Jewish martyrs who had been faithful to God and who would someday, along with others who had so lived and died, be raised from the dead into this life. So what would someday be the future became the present. So that on hearing that another group of Jews or another Jewish follower of Jesus had been executed for their faith, the response was, God will raise them from the dead. God will raise them from the dead. That was an affirmation of faith. And after a while, that affirmation got put into present tense. So-and-so died. God has raised him from the dead. Got it? In the Jesus movement, it became an antiphonal saying. He is risen, he is risen indeed. Now you read Matthew's account of resurrection or the crucifixion. Jesus is crucified, a darkness comes of land, there's a great earthquake, the graves open and dead come out of the graves. That's where this story comes from in the Jewish thought. That the resurrection into life comes because these Jewish martyrs had so died and they will be brought back to life. So they, they were not reporting facts. They were affirming their faith, and the faith was about God's justice. So the, the theory of the resurrection continues to develop after this crisis in Judaism. Paul's adoption of it from the inception of this new myth in Jewish theology until the writing of the Gospel of John is about four centuries. That's a long time for a myth theology to develop and grow and take its roots in the mindset of people. Okay. People's eyes are glazing over, so let's stop the historical part. But it's important to know that this theology just didn't develop in a vacuum. It came from somewhere that people who didn't believe in resurrection did believe in resurrection. They believed in resurrection because of certain historical events that happened. So let's look, if we can, at the role that crises and tragedy play in our own understanding of grace and our relationship to grace. It may be like Irving Yalom, the existential psychologist, psychiatrist says, staring at the sun, but let's give it a go. So we started today by talking about gaining new perspectives. And in order to gain a new perspective, we often have to move to new positions. And sometimes we're moved. Sometimes we're moved against our will and desire. And every theory of spiritual development, psychological human development that I know anything about holds it as a core principle that in order for something new to happen, something needs to die. One of the things that you see going on in the political religious fundamentalism that has taken so much of the world, certainly in this country, is a, is a resistance to this very principle. We don't want to let go. We want to go back. We want to hold on to what was. But, like it or not, older ways of understanding and being in the world are gone. And there is no way to move into new territory without a death of some kind. 
wasn't Jesus pretty clear about this? A grain of, of wheat's got to fall on the ground and die before it can do anything new. If you want to follow me, you have to die. You have to give up your life and follow. He didn't stutter when he was talking about that, did he? He was pretty clear. Now, that became a literal truth for him. But his teachings were all about letting one way of life go and, and, and about embracing another way of life. So, here we go back to tragedy. Jesus is executed. That was a tragedy in the life of his followers. This was not supposed to happen. Because Jesus taught about a realm of reality that was supposed to replace the oppressive power of Rome. And some of his followers, it's pretty clear, thought that was going to be political. But whether or not, they all experienced in and through him a love and freedom that made them a different people. They, they had gotten new life, a new lease on life from him that was a transform, transforming community. And then he was executed. That's not supposed to happen. Their lives had been transformed not because he promised them, if you believe in me, you'll go to heaven when you die. He never said that. But because he offered them a new way of life that lifted them up into a new way of seeing things, a new perspective, a new position in the life they had right here and now. And it was also a political way. And Jesus was a dangerous subversive. Again, not because he wanted to help people escape this world and get off to some other, but because he wanted to bring justice down to this order and the people in power didn't like it. So he was intensely focused on freedom for those who suffered injustice and oppression. And he called out the system at every opportunity he had and he paid a price for it. But he was executed. A shift happened. They had to rethink everything. So between the time of Jesus' execution and the composition of the narratives that we have about him, his followers went back into the synagogues. They were Jews to worship with their Jewish family and friends and companions. And one of the things you can read about in some of Shelby Spong's writings, remember we're using this book as kind of a guide, <clears throat> is a hypothesis that the Gospels were written to fit the Jewish liturgical year. And I personally have become convinced of the worthiness of this position. Certainly what we know is our passion narratives in Holy Week, and the crucifixion, the resurrection, they are, they're all from the Jewish liturgical calendar. It's a beautiful thing. Now, not all Jews saw it this way. Um, if they did, that would mean abandoning their faith, not transforming it. That wasn't an option. For others, they couldn't turn their back on what they'd seen in Jesus, the new life they had. They'd been, I hope you get this, they'd been healed from a lameness that kept them walking in the new understanding. They'd been given new sight so that they could see what had been going on. They had been raised from the dead. All right? Healing of the blind man, healing of the cripple, the raising of Lazarus. Those are parables about their experience. So they begin to tell this story that that, that had shaped their experience. And this story we know now as the Gospel of John. They rewrote their myth. Now, you can see this thing happening over and over and over and over and over in the Christian history. That's one of the reasons that Protestant Christians are so splendid, and so are the Romans. I mean, so are the Catholics in a lot of different various ways, but we Protestants have just mastered it. Well, you see, that's exactly what's going on in the UMC right now, the United Methodist Church. you got a group of people who don't want to change, but another group of people who say, we got a new vision. We see the world a different way. Now, <clears throat> I want to let you know that this 
rewriting of theology that is called uh, reconstructed theology. It's in the Jewish DNA. We didn't make this up. We inherited it. You remember the story of Joseph, the guy with the coat of many colors? He was a jerk. Seriously, he antagonized his brothers. He refused to work in the fields as they did. He paraded around in his fancy clothes saying, I'm dad's favorite. He told him a dream about how one day you all will bow down to me. His brothers couldn't stand him. So they were going to kill him. And then they thought better of it, so they just sold him into slavery. Now, don't be hard on him. You got relatives that you thought this about. <laughs> So years later, this is a story the Jews told folks. This is not history. Years later, a famine hits the land and his brothers have to go to Egypt to beg for grain to eat. And guess what? Joseph is in charge of disposition of the grain. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. And he continues to be a jerk. He plays with them and toys with them, and you have to read the story. And then later, after toying with them for a while, he says, surprise, I'm your brother, Joseph. And they say, oh, God. <laughs> they know they're in for it. It's payback time, right? And Joseph says, relax. Don't get upset. It was not you who sent me here, it was God. God sent me here so that I might be able to provide food for my people in this time of famine. It was not you, it was the little God. Actually, it was human wickedness all the way around. But he had so responded to that situation that he was able to say, don't worry about it, I found the healing side in this. Shift happens. In, this, in the Gospel of John, there's a story about the shift. It uh, contains the best-known verse in the Christian tradition, John 3.16. Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a leading partner in a law firm in Jerusalem. And he had come to talk to Jesus. And since Nicodemus is a big shot, his actions are always subject to scrutiny. The press followed him everywhere. So he arranged a secret rendezvous with Jesus. He got his administrative assistant to hire an Uber. And he went to talk to Jesus. And uh, Nicodemus opens a conversation and says to Jesus, Hey, I hear you're pretty good. Sounds like the first thing you'd say to your therapist on the first session, you know. <laughs> Can you help me? I understand. And Jesus blows off what Nicodemus thinks of him and doesn't honor Nicodemus' credentials at all and just goes right to the heart of the matter and says to Nicodemus, hey, buddy, you got to start all over. you got to become vulnerable and innocent and dependent like a little boy. you got to forego your social responsibility, your achievements, your political affiliation, your wealth, your reputation, your being right and control. you got to let all that go and make yourself um, available to the wondrous gift of God. That's what I've done. This is what you see in me. This is what I invite you into. Living in arrogant security keeps you cut off from the gifts of life, which is what you say you want. There's this long pause. And Jesus just waits him out. Now, I hope you know the story of Nicodemus and Jesus is a parable written by the writers of the Gospel of John. It's not a factual reporting. So finally, Nicodemus says, um, <clears throat> you got to be kidding. That's not possible. Meaning, I can't do it. It's too costly. And Jesus said, well, it's like the wind. You can't make it blow. And when it starts, you can't stop it. And they both knew that that word for wind was the Hebrew word for spirit. 
the Spirit is the power of grace that enables us to contradict the world and the world's expectation and to sign on for the journey into wholeness, freedom, and love that only come through the way of faith and living that Jesus taught and demonstrated. Now, I have so much to say about this that it is both frustrating and hopeful. Uh, it's frustrating in that it can't all be said now, and it's hopeful in that there's so much more to say that I'm probably going to come back and talk some more. But I do want to hit a few highlights, um, and then um, I'm going to take some time off. But um, here's a highlight. I, I have long believed that Carl Jung was absolutely right, that the solution to our difficulties lies in finding a sp spiritual solution to life's dilemma. And um, over the last probably 10, 12 months, I have really in my own study been giving myself to try to understand what Bill Miller meant in the big book of AA when he says there's no way out of addiction unless you find um, a, a life-giving religious experience. And he never says what that religious experience is. How do you get it? How do you find it? What is it? It's the same thing that Jung is saying in that famous quote that I love of Jung. says that you have to have, you, you, your solution to your life's dilemma comes in finding a, a spiritual solution to what you're looking for. But Jung never said how you do that. Jesus did. And Jung did too. But all the great spiritual teachers. But they, they don't do it in just straightforward. You do this, 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 and this. I have what I was taught in the church growing up, if you're lost, there are three simple ways to salvation. All sin becomes for the glory of God, you know, all that sort of stuff. I believe this. It never worked for me. Never. I didn't get it. I thought there was something wrong with me. And what Jesus said is that you, you have to work. You have to seek. You have to put in the long hours. And then it's a gift. You don't earn it. It's a gift. It's a gift of grace. I've also been sharing with you that I think the Trinity we live inside of is made up of love, honesty, and freedom. And I believe that. I think we, we are not very good at loving each other. We're certainly not good at being honest. And we all want to be free. Everybody wants to be free. That's the goal of spiritual work. Nirvana is simply me. The, the literal meaning of the word nirvana is <sighs> um, salvation means uh, room to move around in. You remember that Texas gospel song, give me room, give me room, give me plenty of room to move around in? That's salvation, space to move around in. That's freedom but only one side of freedom. The other side of freedom is a burden. It's onerous because it gives you a confrontation with the deepest questions of life. Who am I really and really how am I to live? And I know that the answer to that means that I am not anyone apart from you. So how can you and I live together? Who are we together? How are we to live together? And we're not very good at that. Another highlight reflected contained in this is contained in this passage I want to read to you from Teilhard de Chardin. And as I read it, I want you to think about the images from the James Webb t Telescope. This is a quote from de Chardin. At this very moment, we have reached a delicate point of balance at which a readjustment is essential. It could not, in fact, be otherwise. Our Christology is still expressed in exactly the same terms as those which three centuries ago could satisfy people whose outlook on the cosmos is now physically impossible for us to accept. Shift happens. We have to rethink. So, 
Another highlight worthy of deep exploration and expression will have us redefining, as I'm attempting to do, both the words resurrection and incarnation. Incarnation is not something that happened. It's something that is happening. Grace seeks to come alive in you and me, in us. Resurrection is not a historical event that leads to a doctrine to believe in or not. Resurrection is a lived experience of transformation. So I will put all this differently uh, that you see, and these will be on the web Tuesday. Subscribing to the belief systems of religion that requires us to deny the truths of scientific discovery or condemn others because of their sexual orientation or racial differences is going counter to the path that grace has set us on and which Jesus calls us to. And with regard to all those things, we still got a lot of work to do. Shift happens. The, the, the teachings of Jesus <clears throat> found in the Gospel of John, as well as in the beliefs and practices of that community of empowerment, say that we are not to look at the crucifixion as something gone wrong. It was tragedy. Tragedy happens. It's part of the evolutionary process. We all suffer, or will. We all die. We all lose everything and everyone that matters to us. But that doesn't have the last word. To affirm the faith of Jesus is to say that the final word belongs to life, to freedom, to honesty, to love, to justice, to grace. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and have a wonderful rest of your summer. See you here next week. <clears throat>